This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Well, I am so delighted to have Dr. Bickman. He earned his PhD in bioenergetics, which we're going to learn more about today. And he was a postdoctoral fellow with the Duke National University of Singapore in Metabolic Disorders. Currently, his professional focus as a scientist and associate professor at Brigham Young is to better understand the role of elevated insulin in regulating obesity and diabetes, including the relevance of ketones in mitochondrial function. I'm so delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much for your flexible schedule. Oh, hey, Cynthia, my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. I'm delighted to be able to talk with you. Yeah. And so first and foremost, how are you navigating the new normal at home? Right. Oh, it is complicated. We're very fortunate, and I readily acknowledge that, where being a tenured professor gives a certain amount of financial security. And my wife is an at-home mom, so she's able to really devote full-time effort to the kids. Um, And that, of course, is itself a mixed bag. She often feels (laughs) like she's not very successful because the kids are often very unruly. They would rather be at school with their friends in many ways, and who can blame them? But yeah, I mean, we are fortunate in that we can weather this storm pretty well. But boy, this can't be the new normal. And people need to not let it become the new normal. We need to acknowledge that we will come to a point where we have to accept that this is a virus that is here to stay, and Mm -hmm. we need to just adjust accordingly. Well, I'm so glad to have your perspectives here with me today. And and as I've been saying to all of our guests that we bring in on Everyday Wellness, trying to find some normalcy in the new normal, myself included, with a kiddo that's going to start ninth grade and one that's going to start seventh grade at home and boys who, you know, they're at a point in their lives where their peers are a huge focus. And so being at home with their parents and their two dogs is probably not what they envisioned at this point. No, especially going into high school. I look at some of the kids in my neighborhood that are going into their senior year and my heart genuinely just it breaks for them because I loved my senior year of high school. It was so fun. Yeah. And the idea of me only being able to, in, in our school district, they can only go two mornings a week and the rest of it's online. Oh, that would just be so boring. That would be tough for sure. So giving our children a little bit of grace these days. But yes. So let's dive into, you know, where did your interest in, you know, metabolic disorders really stem from? Was it a passion or just a a curiosity that you had in undergrad that transitioned into graduate school? Was it a professor that kind of got the ball rolling? I always feel like great teachers and great educators oftentimes can inspire us to change our, shift our focus or, you know, turn our path and, you know, what we end up pursuing in, in terms of our occupation. Yeah. The transition, if I have to pinpoint a moment, and I think I almost can, it would be near the end of my master's degree. So it was near the end of my undergraduate degree where this idea of what I was going to do with my life was, it just sort of crushed me. It was such an unexpected burden. And I'm sure it had something to do with the fact that I'd just gotten married in our last (laughs) year as undergraduates. We were both 24. And the idea of me, in my mind, it was, I want to be the provider for this future little family of ours. What on earth am I going to do? Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in a class with a professor and the professor made some comment, which was something like, 
be sure you get your questions to me at the beginning of class or your assignments and ask questions during class because I have to leave right when class is over. And this was, you know, like with the class would end at like 3.30 because I need to go coach my daughter's soccer game or something. And I just thought that is awesome. Mm -hmm. I want that kind of balance because for me, the way I was raised in what I saw in my family was that my job would be a means to an end. Mm -hmm. And that end would be providing for my family and being a very devoted, committed husband and father. And I thought, you know, I think being a professor may let me do that. Mm -hmm. It will give me that freedom of schedule. And so that's what got me interested in academia. And then I stepped immediately into the master's degree of exercise physiology because that was my undergraduate degree. I was Mm -hmm. interested in exercise. And that interest was really maybe superficial in that I was interested in how muscles worked and how muscles got bigger and faster. But it was during this master's degree, like I mentioned a moment ago, where I stumbled across one specific manuscript that detailed this new finding, namely that fat cells release pro-inflammatory cytokines, these little pro-inflammatory proteins. And that sort of, it struck me in two different ways. One, that fat cells are endocrine organs, Mm -hmm. that they secrete molecules, secrete hormones that affect the body. I had no idea that that Mm -hmm. happened. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And two, it started to, these researchers who published this paper were basically positing or theorizing that these pro-inflammatory proteins from the fat cells are what connects obesity to diabetes. And that just sort of struck a chord. It planted a seed of interest. And so I immediately shifted from exercise science and wanted to get into obesity research for my PhD. And I did that. I know you're on the East Coast. I went to East Carolina University Mm -hmm. in the eastern part of North Carolina. And it was a wonderful program for me. The program, as you mentioned, was bioenergetics. And that is basically a clever word for studying energy and organism in a living organism. And so a lot of nutrient biochemistry, a lot of mitochondrial physiology and mitochondrial function, that was really the focus of my Mm -hmm schooling. And then my dissertation work was focused on the metabolic alterations that happen in the muscle of people who've had gastric bypass, but a gastric bypass surgery for weight loss. And then I followed that up with a postdoctoral work, as you noted, with Duke. And that was more specifically now studying how fat, the molecule fat plays a part in causing insulin resistance, which is, of course, the base problem with type 2 diabetes. So it was still stepping through the waters of obesity-induced diabetes or insulin resistance. And then now, having run my own lab for the last 10 years, I've still dabbled in muscle cells, but I'm much more interested these days in fat cells. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's a new graduate course I'm putting together. It's just sort of the physiology of of fat cells specifically. But it's relevant because when the fat cell, I won't get too far ahead. I'll just end with this thought. Fat cells really play a much more pivotal role in overall health than many people realize. And it's not just because someone's fat. It's the actual nature of the growth of the fat cell, how the fat cell is growing. There's some nuance there, but as it's growing, depending on how it precipitates a disease state. So a few moments, I guess, to recap that. One was seeing my professor who I thought had a good balance of family life and professional work life. And then second, it was this research paper published that really got me interested in insulin resistance and obesity, and then shifting my focus to be much more heavily on fat cells rather than muscle cells. 
Well, I love that you had such a thoughtful, even as a young man, had such a thoughtful approach to how you wanted to be a husband and a parent and, you know, kudos to you because I believe that there are a lot of people that are out there that are focused much less on, you know, finding a role for themselves within their family to be a supportive parent and spouse and more focused on making money, being like the sole focus of their focus. Right. That's the Uh, end. Yes. And yet, you know, what this year has shown so many of us is, or reaffirmed for many of us, is what areas of our lives do we need to spend more time focusing on as opposed to less? But I think the biggest point that maybe some of the listeners may not be as familiarized with is about fat cells and about fat in general. I think we, it's largely poorly understood. And there's so much dogma as it pertains to health, wellness, weight gain, Mm -hmm. et cetera, but really starting with fat as an endocrine organ, I mean, that blows everyone's minds. I mean, even as a a nurse practitioner, I know I was not taught that many years ago when I was a student. And so I would love for you to kind of talk about how sophisticated, which again, many of us find so surprising. We think of fat just as fat, but fat is a very sophisticated organ and how that impacts our susceptibility to developing diabetes and insulin mm-hmm. resistance, et cetera. But I'd love for you to kind of touch on that because sure. I think that is really relevant, you know, especially given our current, you know, statistics on weight gain and no oh, yeah. here in the United States. Yeah, it is more timely than ever. In fact, even doubly so, not only because so much of our world, the world is gaining weight, but also in the midst of this pandemic, this viral infection, there is an undeniable connection to obesity with a susceptibility or seriousness of COVID-19 infection. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if you want me to get into that, but I most certainly can. I would love for you to touch on that. It was okay, well, I'll, well, let me get there then. And I'll address your primary question first, which is some of the interesting aspects of fat cells as endocrine cells, endocrine organ, fat as an endocrine organ. So one I mentioned in that fat cells are releasing pro-inflammatory proteins. Those are an endocrine signal. Anytime one cell is releasing a molecule that is sensed more distally in the blood by a different cell, that is now an endocrine event. And so the fat cell releasing pro-inflammatory proteins, that is endocrine in and of itself. Everyone has most certainly heard of the protein, the hormone leptin, Mm -hmm. but people only think about leptin as a satiety signal. And that's profoundly unfair, just like insulin has so much more nuance than just controlling glucose. And I can elaborate on that later. Leptin does far more than just tell the brain that we should be done eating and that we should stop. Unfortunately, that signal can get somewhat lost and people become leptin resistant. But Putting that aspect of leptin aside, leptin is essential for fertility, for example. And the idea that someone must have, especially a woman, must have sufficient fat cells to make sufficient leptin to even allow the brain to signal back down to the ovaries that they can ovulate. It is critical to have enough leptin from fat cells. If you have someone with deficient leptin because of a genetic disease where they don't make leptin or a young woman is too skinny to not have enough fat, this is a woman who will be infertile. They will not ovulate. Must put leptin back into the system for that to happen. And so it's it's a pretty intricate and cleverly put together system where it's basically insurance for the fetus, for the baby, where if this is a woman who doesn't have enough fat to go through the very energetically expensive process of growing another little human and then feeding that little human on the back end of it all, then don't 
get pregnant, then let's mm-hmm. shut that system off and not let it turn back on again until there is enough energy on her body. Because the fact is the woman, she carries that burden. It is a tremendous burden. It really is a responsibility that is hers. You know, I, my part in, in our family was a very easy little event. <laughs> and then it was me just sort of coaxing my wife along for the next several years through the babies and the, and the nursing. So I say that with absolute respect, genuinely. So leptin is more relevant than just satiety. It is relevant to fertility as well. It also stimulates the production of mitochondria. Leptin induce, they activate mitochondrial biogenesis. And people may recall that mitochondria are the part of the cell, the parts of the cell that break down glucose and fats and for energy. So it's what is giving most of the cell its energy. There are other hormones too. And I'll just mention one, another one briefly called adiponectin. Adiponectin is a hormone that is more selectively released from subcutaneous fat, the fat beneath our skin, as opposed to the visceral fat, the fat that is deep within our abdomen. And actually the same goes for leptin. One of the reason or I'll finish that thought. Adiponectin actually improves insulin sensitivity. It's a very metabolically friendly hormone, just like leptin is. What is so interesting, if I back up to leptin for a second, is that if you took a gram of subcutaneous fat from a woman and a gram of subcutaneous fat from a man, that woman's fat will make more leptin than the man's fat. So there's something even more leptin producing from the woman's fat than the man. Of course, that is added to the fact that men generally put more fat in the visceral space, the more pathogenic space, and women generally put more fat in the subcutaneous space, which is why women can have more fat than men and be healthier. Uh, We are built to be that way. So that's some of the endocrine aspect of fat cells. But then if we move from the normal physiology of fat cells, when they're working well, what, what they're doing, we can then progress into the pathological side, the pathogenic side of fat cells. And really the problem starts in a, at least from my view of one who studies metabolic diseases like insulin resistance being the primary one, it all happens because the fat cells become too fat. And let me sort of put that in, in perspective. So as someone is gaining fat, let's say we had two people and they both were gaining fat at the same rate. They were both gaining 10 pounds of fat per year. One person could gain fat by the fat cells proliferating or multiplying. That's called hyperplasia. When cells start to make more of themselves Mm -hmm. or we start to get more of those cells, that's hyperplasia. Or I could say it another way, the fat tissue is hyperplastic. Mm -hmm. So more cells, but none of the cells ever get too big. They're all fairly modest sized. Right when they start to get the signal to keep growing, like from insulin, insulin tells fat cells to grow, like a fertilizer tells plants to grow. It will grow and then before it gets too big, it'll recruit another cell that will become a fat cell. And so all the cells maintain a pretty modest size. We just get a lot more of them. Mm -hmm. In contrast, we could have this person's buddy who's gaining the same amount of fat, but his fat is growing through hypertrophy. So this person isn't getting more fat cells. The fat cell number is set but the fat cells themselves get bigger and bigger and bigger. They become hypertrophic. So we have on the one hand, hypertrophic fat growth, a set number of cells, but each cell being substantially bigger. And I mean like four or five times bigger, or we have hyperplastic fat growth, which is when the cell size, the fat cell size is still modest. We just have a lot more of them. Hyperplastic fat growth is good. That is a healthy way to get fat. And I know that seems like a paradox, but we know there are people that can get very fat and have 
normal glucose, they'll have normal insulin levels, they'll have normal, probably elevated insulin, but normal high blood pressure. They're generally pretty healthy. In contrast, and interestingly, this is a person who can get very fat. They can get very fat and continue to get fat. So these are the people who can get super morbidly obese, 500, 600 pounds. It's because their fat cells continue to stay a small size and they just keep making more of them. What is so important about that paradigm is the fat cells maintain an exquisite insulin sensitivity. Like I said a moment ago, insulin tells fat cells to grow. These fat cells can continue to store more fat or the fat tissue can by just getting more cells. And so as the fat cells stay insulin sensitive, the rest of the body does too. So they don't have this systemic or global insulin resistance in all of the numerous diseases that come from it. And we can get into that later. In contrast, in the hypertrophic fat growth, the fat cells have become so big that they reach what we could consider a maximal dimension. And they know if I continue, the fat cells basically thinking, if I continue to respond to insulin, I will get too big and will blow up, mm -hmm. basically. And so the fat cell, to prevent that damage, that death of the cell, it becomes insulin resistant. And so insulin mm -hmm. is coming and telling it to take in fat, which it still can, but now it's leaking fat out. And so it's experiencing lipolysis, even though insulin is trying to tell it not to, because insulin inhibits lipolysis. It inhibits fat breakdown, but not anymore. So this big fat hypertrophic fat cell is leaking fat and back to what sort of started this conversation, it's also leaking pro-inflammatory proteins. Mm -hmm. And it's doing both of these things in order to try to survive. By leaking fat, it means it's not getting so big that it will die. And then second, by releasing pro-inflammatory proteins, part of what it's trying to do is stimulate the growth of new blood cells, new blood vessels, I mean, new capillaries, because the cell has gotten so big that it can't sufficiently oxygenate itself or give off its carbon dioxide. It's just too big. And so it's attempting to increase blood flow to attempt to continue to get oxygen and exchange carbon dioxide, but it fails. And as it is leaking fat and leaking these pro-inflammatory cytokines, now the other tissues in the body start to become insulin resistant. So the hypertrophic fat cells were the first domino to fall, and then it will start bumping into the liver, making the liver insulin resistant, increasing cholesterol and increasing glucose. It'll make the brain insulin resistant, increasing Alzheimer's disease or migraine headaches. It'll make the ovaries and the infertility in both women and men, PCOS in women, and erectile dysfunction in men, it'll cause hypertension. So the problems start to spill throughout the body, but the fat cells fell first. They're the first ones to go because they got too big. And unfortunately, that is how most people get fat. Most people get fat through hypertrophic growth, which means they reach a maximum amount of fat. Most people even if they tried, couldn't get to 500 pounds. Their fat cells simply, they cannot store that much fat because as the fat cells become insulin resistant, they basically reach a limit. Now, what is so fascinating about that perspective, now that people know the different nature between fat cells, I can mention just how relevant this is and how we manipulate this in clinical settings. You can take someone who's a overweight type two diabetic. So that means they have hypertrophic fat cell growth, the second guy. You can give him a drug which are called PPAR gamma activators. These are a class of drugs called thiazolidine diones. Mm -hmm. And he can become very insulin sensitive quite quickly. And he starts gaining a lot of weight. What 
TZDs do, these PPAR gamma activators, is it pushes the fat cells to start becoming hyperplastic. It pushes them into this other healthier way of gaining fat. And so their insulin sensitivity gets better. One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern, and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, Come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean, science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, 
promoting good gut flora and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated and cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need, are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose of three grams actually promotes more benefits to gut health, immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equip. EQUIPfoods.com slash Cynthia20. You definitely want to check this out. Directly, because we've addressed the sick fat cells, unfortunately, now paradoxically, they're getting more insulin sensitive, but that means the fat cells can start to store more fat again, and thus they gain an incredible amount of weight, which is the main reason people stop taking the drug. They're thinking, well, that's great that my diabetes is getting better, but I just gained 50 pounds, and that's Mm -hmm. not a great trade-off. So anyway, we have a drug, and even there using this drug, we sort of get things wrong while we're trying to get things right, which almost underscores most metabolic drugs. They always only ever treat aspect manifestations of the problem. So that's the fat cell in the context of insulin resistance, which is admittedly my context. And now you'll indulge me and let me just step out of my total area of strength and talk about COVID-19 for a moment. I'm not a virologist or an immunologist, and I want everyone to know that. But what is so interesting is the compelling data that we just can't ignore that obesity matters profoundly in COVID-19. So the best data from New York found that 94% of everyone who has a serious COVID-19 infection, serious to the point that they need help, 94%, so virtually everyone, has at least one pre-existing condition. And 88%, so almost 9 in 10 of these people have two or more, and the number one pre-existing condition was obesity. And then it's hypertension and diabetes. These are all metabolic problems, but it's compelling that obesity is number one. What's so interesting about this is how COVID-19 infects cells. So unlike a bacteria, a virus must invade an organism, a host cell. So we will inhale or somehow take in this viral particle, then this little particle has to get into a cell. Once it's in the cell, then it starts replicating itself and releasing more copies of itself to go and infect other cells. But again, it must get into a cell. The way that COVID-19 gets into a cell is suspected to be through what's called a co-receptor known as ACE2, A-C-E-2. So ACE2 is a co-receptor facilitating the entry of COVID-19 into a cell. Well, wouldn't you know which cell has almost more of these ACE2 co-receptors than any other cell in the body, and that's fat cells. So fat cells become this perfect little incubator It's built almost to allow the COVID-19 to come in and start replicating. And it stands to reason if you have a lot more fat cells or a lot bigger fat cells, that's just more doorways for COVID-19 to come into that fat and start replicating. So earlier when you asked about how sort of we're adapting to this new normal, I kind of alluded to what I'm about to elaborate on now. And that is, I do think the sooner we get to accepting that this is a virus that is never going away, the sooner we can start addressing more fundamental 
I would believe, a fundamental issue, which is addressing our metabolic health. And I would want people to know it's virtually impossible that we're going to eradicate this virus. We do not have a good history of eradicating viruses, especially these COVID strains. We can't. The vaccines are only very moderately effective. And so, sure, let's hope for a vaccine. Sure, let's try to control the spread. But I also think we're going to need to get to the point soon where we say, okay, we can't continue to live like this. Let's address who are the people that ought to be really worried about this. And then it'll be people generally who are metabolically compromised. So let's, you be careful, you take action to more heavily about your health. I don't say this to sound calloused, and I hope someone listening isn't going to accuse me of that. Maybe I am callously pragmatic, but I do think we're a little naive if we think we're going to just eradicate this virus. The sooner we accept that, and then we just start addressing underlying susceptibility or pre-existing conditions that make this more serious than in others, I really do think the better off we'll be. But I appreciate that's not easy to do, but it is a simple idea. So many good things that you touched on, and I want to make sure that I keep it well organized in my brain. But thinking of, number one, thinking of insulin as fertilizer for fat cells, that's a huge takeaway piece. Number two is acknowledging that there are two different types of fat cells, and one is going to make us more prone to metabolic disease than the other. Number three, especially given COVID and social distancing, and depending on where you are listening from in the United States or abroad, there may or may not be more restrictions in place in terms of how you're able to go about doing somewhat of a normal existence. But the big takeaway is the more metabolically flexible we are, Mm -hmm. the less apt we are to have complications from COVID or any other type of illnesses. And why on so many levels, you know, I worked as an NP in cardiology for 16 years. One of many reasons why I left my clinical practice that I was working in because I felt that I could actually make a bigger impact by not just writing scripts every day, which is, you know, we're kind of conditioning our patients to believe that there's a pill for every symptom and that we the lifestyle piece isn't important. But yet I would argue, and I'm sure you would as well, that the lifestyle piece is what's most critical and that's where it starts yeah. from. It all starts with food and how well we sleep and how well we manage our stress. And so, you know, for those of us that are listening, I know there's a lot of fear. And I like to remind people that, you know, it's not healthy to live in fear about worrying about contracting or being exposed to a virus because as you stated, more than likely we will all be exposed to it at some point. It's something that we need to live with. And so the best way that we can lessen our likelihood of having any complications is just being healthy weight, you know, not being diabetic, making sure we're not on a slew of medications. I recognize sometimes we need medications to be able to function, but I think that's a really important differentiator for people to really process. Like, yes, we don't have the flexibility slash freedom that we had six or seven months ago, but we do have some control. And so I'm sure you would advocate, as many of us would, that you know, ensuring that we're metabolically flexible is really yeah. one of the best ways to support our health and that of our family members. Yeah. In fact, I like that you're mentioning metabolic flexibility. That is certainly part of this whole puzzle where we typically, not to take that and run with it too far, but we define metabolic flexibility as this ability to shift between the primary metabolic fuels in the body. Basically, someone going freely between being a a sugar burner, burning blood sugar or blood glucose, and then to a fat burner. You know, you're a sugar burner after you've eaten a meal and you shift back to fat burner a few hours later. And insulin controls that shift entirely. And part of the tragedy then in this 
current environment is that most people are eating so much starchy, sugary foods so often because they've been told to, mm -hmm. tragically, they've been told, focus on these carbohydrates and eat every two or three hours. And that is just asinine. Mm -hmm. It is ridiculous advice. All that means is the person has basically elevated insulin every moment of the day. And as insulin is elevated, that is a body that is stuck in sugar burning. Now, I'm oversimplifying it a bit, admittedly, but there's a truth there, which is the body is forced to primarily utilize glucose as its key metabolic fuel. And if someone wants to lose fat, well, good luck because you're stuck burning sugar. You're not even burning. You're not even touching your fat. You have to allow the insulin to come down in order to shift to fat burning, which is going to be prerequisite, of course, to losing fat cell size, mm -hmm. shrinking your fat cells. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, let's say someone is becoming less metabolically flexible. And so they develop some degree of insulin resistance. And why, you know, we're now seeing you alluded to this to some degree, you know, the mini meals, the snacking, the eating all mm -hmm. day long, you know, the need to eat every two to three hours. But why are we seeing higher incidence and prevalence of this, not only here in the United States, but in a lot of westernized cultures, which was not the norm 100 years ago? You know, the rates of obesity, diabetes are just continuing to escalate. And, you know, why are we seeing more of this? Yeah, well, without a doubt, it's our diet. I think that is the absolute key variable. There are others, and I'll certainly mention them perhaps briefly, but our we have changed our diet so dramatically. In fact, I think within the dietary component, there's really two things worth mentioning, and that is that we consume carbohydrates at a, in an amount and in a way that we never have before in human history, um, namely that we eat very refined processed starches and sugars, and we never used to do that. It is laughable to think that our ancestors would have eaten as much carbohydrate as we do now. I think it's silly, but I'm not an anthropologist and I'll admit that, but I think it's pretty silly to imagine our ancestors eating the amount of carbohydrates that we do. Even the very nature of plants is so different. Mm -hmm. We didn't have, like look at an apple nowadays to compare to what an apple was even just a hundred years ago. They are profoundly different fruits. So we in our genius have really changed these things to make them yummier than they ever were before. And that, of course, means more sugar and starch and less of the you know, nutrients, I suppose. So we eat carbohydrates in a way that we never have before. And we eat oils. We eat fats that we never did before. And namely, that is mostly soybean oil. And someone may hear me say that and think, well, I don't eat soybean oil. Yeah, you do. It has become the single most commonly consumed fat in the Western diet. And I'll say that again, we eat more of our fat from soybean oil than any other thing we eat. And that's because it is in every processed food. And really, again, I worry that someone would say, no, nah, well, not me. It's in every salad dressing you're eating. It's almost every condiment. It's every baked, packed food. It's everywhere. And really, this has been tested in the US. This has been uh, scrutinized. It is number one fat. And the number two is margarine, for heaven's sakes, oh. another fake fat. And so people are wanting to blame animal fats. It's all these animal saturated fats that are killing us. No, we aren't eating more of them than we were 100 years ago. Really, the amount of fat we get from beef is no more now than it was in 1909. It went down, it went up, and then it went down again when we started to have a fear of animal fats. And then in that fear of animal fat, unfortunately, gave birth to these industrial seed oils like soybean oil, cotton seed oil, corn oil. In fact, just the other day, I saw someone when I was going out of the grocery store, they had like two big bottles of vegetable oil. 
that is soybean oil. It, those are the, the refined seed oils. They are not vegetables. You don't get oil from vegetables. Well, you don't really get oil from seeds. We just have the clever technology to do that. Now, I would say I don't want someone to hear me saying these seed oils are bad and then think I am talking, including flaxseed and chia. I do think that milled flaxseed and milled chia can be healthy and part of a good, smart diet. And importantly, you're not drinking those oils. If you were, then I would also say that's not good. That's too much. But those milled seeds are okay. And eating seeds is fine. You know, if it's just drinking these sort of fake oils that would come from them in the amounts that we do, that's terrible. So those two things in particular, the insulin spiking refined carbohydrates and the omega-6 polyunsaturated fats that you get from like soybean oil, that is a terrible mix. And even in the light, in light of the hypertrophic fat cells, one of the things that's so terrible about those, the soybean oil is that the primary fat in soybean oil is metabolized into a molecule that actually forces hypertrophic fat cell growth. And so when you combine this inclination for hypertrophic fat cell growth with insulin stimulating fat cells to grow anyway, that's a perfect storm and very much part of, I believe, the cause of explaining why we got to where we are metabolically speaking. So diet is without a doubt the big variable and those are the two culprits within diet. And then I would also add that stress the environment that we live in, and stress is such a vague, ambiguous thing often, but I actually think the biggest stress is sleep, mm-hmm. where people are not allowing themselves to sleep. And I say this with a great degree of self-awareness. I am a terrible sleeper. I've been up since 3.30, and it just sort of is the product of a very active brain and me always getting up with the kids once they were weaned. So that was the deal I made with my wife. When they were nursing, she'd get up with them. And when she was, when mommy was sleep deprived, things were not good at home. And so <laughs> I quickly realized oh, that, yeah, that, well, just, yeah, the home life in general was just not good when mommy was tired and I just couldn't operate on less sleep. And so it was part of the deal. Once the kids were weaned, they're mine. And I would get up with them and take them potty. I mean, she would sometimes too, of course, mm-hmm. but So ever since then, I'm just a terrible sleeper. But anyway, I'm getting off topic a little. We need to adhere to better sleep habits, making sure we are removing bright lights. And I would add, as I have been playing around with tracking my own sleep with the sleep monitor and measuring my glucose with using a, a CGM, and I would encourage anyone, there's, I've been working with this company called Levels, and they have this really clever algorithm. I don't think it's broadly released yet, but it gives you these metabolic scores for what you're eating, and it's so clever. But if I eat a lot, about two or anywhere from about three to four hours before I go to bed, my sleep is shot. I can see my CGM, my glucose has been elevated for most of the night. It's shocking how long it takes my glucose to come down if I indulge in something starchy before I go to bed. And my sleep tracker ring tells me, it will tell me that next morning you ate too late into the evening and your heart rate and your body temperature was up too high for too long. And it's absolutely true. So back to my point, we need to have better sleep habits. If someone is sleep deprived, even one bad night, I hate to say this, even one bad night can cause demonstrable insulin resistance the next day. Now, that's not chronic insulin resistance. Get one good night and you're back to normal. But you think about the person who's getting one bad night after another, after another, that is a stress that increases cortisol and epinephrine, the two primary stress hormones. It really does. And those two stress hormones are insulin antagonists. They directly fight insulin trying to do its job. 
And its main job is lowering blood glucose, although it does much more than that. But those two hormones want to increase blood glucose. And so we then set off this tug of war where the sleep-deprived, stressful body is trying to push up glucose for no good reason. Insulin is trying to lower it. And now we are setting the stage for insulin resistance. So those are, I would say, the two biggest diet, the biggest, and then second, stress. And I would, again, add, just to emphasize, I believe that's most commonly coming from sleep deprivation. Well, I'm so glad that you're making these points because the listeners hear me talk about this a lot, but especially the seed oil piece, which without a doubt, when myself, my family go out to eat, I've gotten to a point now we don't eat out very often and certainly not during COVID and social distancing because it's so much more complicated. But I would wonder why if I went out and I believe in moderation, not deprivation, if I wanted to have a French fry off my kid's plate or Mm -hmm, wanted mm -hmm. to indulge, I would feel so badly. And it's because we've eaten so clean for so many years. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to try 
armra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. That now I've kind of gotten to a point where I've become that person. I'm like, what do you fry your your fries and you know what are your <laughs> dressings made from because i yep. now just go out and get a piece of meat and some vegetables and just tell them yep. you can put butter on it salt and pepper and i'm good like i don't want any sauces because i don't know where it's coming from yep but i think it was on twitter last week it might have been pd magnet had shared a study that showed that when we consume obesogenic oils that they actually become part of the cell and so it takes oh, yeah. like two years two years to mm-hmm. get rid of it. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to be even more conscientious because the yeah. last thing I want is my healthy cell membranes to be infiltrated by this yuck. Yep. And then lastly, the stress slash sleep piece. You know, one of the things that I talked about in my first TED talk was that for women in particular, if they get less than six hours a night of sleep and how many women listening think it's no big deal that they're not getting enough sleep, it lowers your ability to control your blood sugar by up to 60%. And so as women are getting older in particular, men as well, where we tend to be more prone to insulin resistance and why make it harder for our bodies to do what they're meant to do physiologically in a healthy way? Why make it harder? Yeah, well said. In fact, I love what you described a moment ago with regards to the obesogenic oils. That term is also, I don't know where anyone else was invoking it, but it comes from, there's one particular study that describes the uniquely obesogenic aspect of seed oils where in rodents, they were fed a diet that was completely isocaloric, exact same amount of calories. One had a, the diet, the fat source was soybean oil. The other one had a fat source that was coconut oil. Then the other group had fructose as a primary source. The seed oil, the soybean oil group got the fattest of all, despite eating the exact same amount of calories. And that goes, that challenges this dietary dogma that it's just purely thermodynamics. It is purely energy in, energy out. If you can track every calorie in, then you know exactly how fat you're going to be or how lean you're going to be. And that is just ridiculous. It is silly. We have data that challenges that idea. There are molecules that are more inclined to be stored, like the fats from soybean oil. They set the stage for that. If insulin is elevated, it promotes fat, selective fat growth. And it also changes metabolic rate. One aspect of insulin I haven't mentioned at all is that if someone eats a diet that is keeping their insulin low, their metabolic rate, as opposed to bumping up their insulin, can be up to 280 calories a day higher. That is a significant change in metabolic rate. And we also see this in diabetes. When you take a type 1 diabetic and put them on insulin therapy, their metabolic rate will slow by about 20%, so about 300 calories. Same thing goes for a type 2 diabetic. Put them on insulin therapy, which I think is the worst thing in the world, but it happens anyway. And once again, their metabolic rate slows. Insulin is so determined to store energy that it will slow the metabolic rate in the body in order to store more energy. And of course, the best place to store that is in fat cells. So such helpful information. And I think it's kind of illuminating for many people that insulin is not a one-size-fits-all hormone for sure. So curious, you know, and I'm sure that we probably would agree on this, you know, which diseases do you feel are, are most influenced by insulin resistance? Yeah, so the most obvious, the lowest hanging fruit is type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. At its core, it is a disease of insulin resistance. And everyone knows one of insulin's main actions is to lower blood glucose. 
after a while, the body becomes so resistant to its own insulin that despite having several times higher insulin levels than it did before, it can't keep the glucose in check. And now the glucose starts to rise and then they identify it as type two diabetes. Other problems that come from that, like I mentioned, infertility, it is so fascinating to look at the intricate network or, or the function of hormone production in ovaries. The same process can happen in testes, but in women, in ovaries, there is an enzyme called aromatase that converts testosterone into the estrogens. There's no, of course, you know, there's no single hormone called estrogen. It's a little family of hormones, the estrogens, but they all were once testosterone. All the estrogens in every woman, in every man, they were once testosterone. It's converted. And women have more of this aromatase enzyme than men do in their gonads. And so a woman is converting relatively more testosterone into estrogens. Insulin inhibits aromatase and it continues to inhibit it even while the rest of the body is becoming insulin resistant. What's so interesting about this situation is as the whole body is becoming insulin resistant, whole body insulin levels are going up. And that elevated insulin is having an elevated impact on inhibiting aromatase. And so now she can't convert as much testosterone into estrogens. So she doesn't get the estrogen spike, which means not she has abnormal ovulation. And she has too much testosterone, which means she can start to manifest with sort of prototypical male things like more coarse body hair or even hair loss or acne, these kind of, like I said, prototypical male things. It's all because the insulin is messing up her sex hormone production. In the case of the man with infertility, the main form of infertility being erectile dysfunction, it's directly a consequence of insulin resistance in blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And as the blood vessels become insulin resistant, they can't dilate as well. And this inability to dilate blood vessels, of course, means infertility in the man, not to mention systemic hypertension, so elevated blood pressure throughout the entire body. And truly, we could keep going. Fatty liver disease, Alzheimer's disease is commonly referred to as insulin resistance of the brain because the brain, as it fails to respond to insulin, can't get all of the glucose that it needs. And so it has this kind of energetic gap. It's almost starving to death while the rest of the body is swimming in a sea of glucose, it can't get enough. And anyway, and more and more, and, and certainly if anyone's more curious, by all means, go get my book at the risk of promoting myself, because I certainly go into a lot more detail on these diseases there. So what are some of the ways, you know, that we can effectively reverse insulin resistance, improve metabolic flexibility? I know that, you know, one of my favorite strategies is intermittent fasting. I want to just plug mm -hmm. that for the appropriate person. Um, that's definitely a way to, you know, improve your utilization of fats for stored energy and get your insulin down. But what are your, some of your favorite strategies for helping to reverse insulin resistance? Yep. In fact, I have thought a great deal about this to the point that I have four clear and even, dare I say, memorable pillars. So the, and they are ordered for a reason as I'll mention them. So the first one is control carbohydrates. And that is just on its face practical. And I don't mean to wage war on all carbohydrates. I wouldn't want someone to hear me say control carbs and mistake me for saying don't eat any. I'm not saying that. But recognize that carbohydrates are the, the food that will spike, the, the macronutrient that will spike insulin the most. That is absolutely true because it is made of carbohydrate. It will, it will convert to glucose and thus spike insulin. So just control it. Eat the carbohydrates that have the least amount of starch and sugar. Focus on the more fibrous uh, carbohydrates, which is vegetables and to varying degrees, certain fruits. And indeed, I think it's kind of that easy. 
just to keep it simple, I generally advocate people focus on fruits and vegetables, mm -hmm. but eat them, don't drink them. Yeah. Drinking these as smoothies or juiced is a terrible idea. We're not meant to get that highly sort of purified fructose. It's not healthy. So don't do it. So that's step number one, control carbs. Step number two is prioritize protein. And that is just to ensure we get enough protein to fuel, I shouldn't use the word fuel, to provide enough substance or building blocks for our body to maintain function. And these proteins, not only these amino acids are built are used to build proteins in certain cells like muscles and, and bone. And even like bone, for example, people don't think about the relevance of protein in bone. If it weren't for protein being a part of this matrix of bone, our bones would be hard but very brittle. It snaps so easily. Mm -hmm. It's the protein that allows the bone to have a little bit of give to prevent it from breaking. And of course, many other effects of the protein. And as you prioritize protein, make sure you get it from animal sources. It is not People will, nowadays, there's such a push to avoid any animal products. It's a push to just eat completely plant products. That is, I always hate speaking in such sort of strong language, but it is terrible. It is incompatible with human survival. It truly, you will die if you try to get all of your nutrition from plants, and protein is no exception. It does not have the range of amino acids that we need, that we get from animal proteins. And plant proteins all contain these molecules that inhibit the digestion of the protein. It sounds like I'm making this up, but they have things called anti-nutrients. And I would encourage anyone to just look for published articles. You will find them, scientific articles that indicate levels of phytic acids, of tannins, of trypsin inhibitors. These are molecules that come with these plant proteins that block our ability to digest them. So don't eat them. And then even third, I'll add one more, plant proteins are often contaminated with metal, where if you think about a norm, what a plant is doing as part of its just function, it's pulling up minerals or metals from the soil. In and of itself, it's an insignificant amount. You could eat the plant, you could eat the fruits and vegetables and be perfectly fine. But when you have taken, let's say, a thousand peas in order to get the protein from a pea, because pea has so little protein in it, mm -hmm. you have to concentrate it from, let's say, a thousand peas. You're also inadvertently concentrating these metals like arsenic and lead. And anyone who wants to learn more, look up the work by this third party uh, called the Clean Label Project, and you can find more of the details there. So prioritize protein, but focus on animal protein. They are demonstrably the best, like whey, egg whites, and well, the whole egg, I would say, and then meat, really of any kind. And then third is related to protein, and that is don't fear fat. We are built to eat fat as humans. We have a higher need for fat than other mammals do. There is a very clever work from an anthropologist where the name of the article is Man, the Fat Hunter, and it describes how our early ancestors were focused on getting the fattiest meat they could. There's something about fat our bodies need. Indeed, fat is essential, just like protein is. So let's focus on those. Also, conveniently, they have the lowest effect on insulin. So they not only nourish the body, but they have a minimal effect on insulin. And the thing about fat and protein, as I said, they kind of come together because in nature they do. The best proteins come with fat, whether it's dairy, egg, or meat, fat and protein come together. And the genius behind that is borne out in the data where fat and protein together in a one-to-one -one by mass ratio is more anabolic than protein alone. 
So it helps, it stimulates more muscle growth than protein alone. And fat helps digest protein. The bile acids that are released when we eat fat improve the digestion of protein in the intestines. And that could be why sometimes, as I've talked to people, they'll say, I can't have whey. It really upsets my stomach. Probably because they were taking pure whey and their guts just have a hard time digesting it. And so I always tell them, well, mix it with some fat and see what happens. And very often they say, oh, well, yeah, actually I can take this. And it could just be because that's the way we're supposed to take it. We're not supposed to take protein alone. It's meant to come with fat. And then my fourth pillar is the one you mentioned, and that is intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. Don't feel the need to eat so often. And I put that as number four. My reason is thus. If you have followed the first three steps, you have adapted to becoming a good fat burner. Your body, because your insulin is low, you burn fat well, which means you can burn your own fat from your own fat cells. So you have energy with you all the time. Mm -hmm. And in that state, fasting becomes easy because if you are stuck in sugar burning mode and you don't eat for a few hours, you sense this panic because mm -hmm. your glucose has come down and you're so addicted to burning glucose or you're so stuck burning glucose, you have to fill that tank back up. You have to add more glucose into the tank. Whereas if you shift and become a fat burner, you got plenty of fuel to burn. It's easy to fast. And in that sense, our body is kind of analogous. That fuel system is analogous to a big truck, a big fuel tanker mm -hmm. rumbling down the road. Like imagine a big semi truck and it's hauling a big tank of fuel. Now, if you look at that truck, it has to stop every several hours and fill up. That's because it's using only the fuel from that small little tank right under the engine, right in the cab. That's analogous to the amount of carbohydrate we have in our bodies that we can burn. We've got about 2,000 calories to burn max about. But the tragedy in that truck analogy is imagine if the truck could tap the fuel that it's carrying, that massive fuel tank that it's hauling around. Well, then it wouldn't need to stop at all. If it could kind of mainline that big fuel tank, it could just keep going. And that is, of course, directly analogous to our fat. Even a lean person has about 100 times more fat and more energy stored as fat than they do stored as glucose. So we have this big amount of energy that we're hauling around. We're moving it around anyway. We may as well use it. And if we followed the first three pillars, we are using fat. We've, we're becoming adapted to fat burning. And thus, fasting becomes much simpler so that's why I put it where I put it. But those are the four pillars, control carbs, prioritize protein, don't fear fat and fast. That's absolutely perfect. And obviously aligns really nicely with a lot of the kind of philosophies and methodologies I have with my own patients. Now we'll have to absolutely bring you back. I could just spend a great deal more time speaking with you, but want to be respectful of your time. How can listeners find you? Tell them about your new book, which I have on my desk right now. Can't wait to dive a little bit farther into it. How can we find you? Yeah, thank you again for the invitation to come speak with you about all this fun stuff. I am fairly active on social media and Twitter and Instagram mostly. And then Facebook, I am also, but Facebook's a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. So I yes. get a little overwhelmed. <laughs> but on Instagram and Facebook, any of these, it's Ben Bickman PhD is my handle. And Bickman is just B-I-K-M-A-N, no C, Ben Bickman PhD. And I generally just use it to share research. I'm not posting the food I eat, not posting anything I'm doing with my family. It's typically just the latest, most relevant research into human metabolism. And then I will also start providing more blog content for a site that I've created with a couple of my brothers. And in fact, we also make a low-carb shake that I'll just refer people to, and they can go to that website to learn more. It's Get Health, and health is spelled H-L-T-H, gethealth.com. And like I said, 
people can learn about a low carb shake, which I think is the best mm -hmm. out there, but they, I'll also start providing more material for that site pretty soon. Awesome. Well, it was such a pleasure and I do look forward to bringing you back. I would love to kind of dive into ketones and more information on metabolism, but thank you again for carving time out of your busy schedule. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again for the invitation. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.